Cultural Literacy, Part 1 of 3, The Samaritan Woman. A few summers ago, while I was in Peru and Chile, I had the chance to read a book. Back in 2017, I went on a date with a really amazing woman and sister in Christ, Jalisa. Following the date, she resolved to get me a book as a gift. After consulting with a few friends who knew me, as an aside, if a girl is consulting your friends to get you a gift after a date, then obviously she's an amazing woman. Anyway, after consulting with a few friends who knew me, she decided to get me Race and Place, How Urban Geography Shapes the Journey to Reconciliation. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to Jalisa, I wouldn't have the luxury of leisure reading for the next year or so, because I'd be starting a PhD program. And as you would imagine, in a PhD program, there's a lot of reading. I think in my first year, I probably read about 300 pages every single week for about a year. And I'm not even kidding. So no, I wouldn't get to read this book for some time. But I was able to finish it while I was in South America. It was a great read. So thank you, Jalisa, for an awesome gift. Um, this series, in part, was inspired by that book. And in fact, that book has also inspired some other series that I've done as well. You can see my series on uh, residential segregation, parts one, two, and three. As you may or may not gather from the title, Race in Place is a book on urban ministry and how things like race, race-related tension, residential segregation, and the like affect our ability to build diverse churches in America. Although that book doesn't fare as well in comparison to other more thorough books on segregation in America, um, for instance, you can see something like The Color of Law, which is an excellent read, or American Apartheid, which is also an excellent read. These books are a little bit dense, but they're both great if you're willing to take the time to read them. Um, so this book, uh, Race and Place, doesn't fare as well in comparison to other more thorough novels like those. But what I did like about this book was to me, it explored the intersection um, of two topics, segregation and Christian ministry in the United States, that we should be thinking a lot more about. There were a number of intriguing propositions throughout the book, uh, but perhaps the one I found most intriguing, and the one I choose to focus on here, is the idea of cultural exegesis. Now, exegesis is a term familiar enough to many of us. Um, a thorough analysis and critical examination, particularly in the context of a religious text. Um, in our case, that means critical examination of the Bible. But the author of the book, Dr. David Long, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, extended this idea, um, or maybe he reminded us of, he reminded us about something important about exegesis, right? Reading isn't just going line by line and understanding the words on a sheet of paper and being able to articulate what they mean. No, that doesn't do justice to the exercise of reading, especially when we're talking about a religious text. Sometimes we need to read situations. We need to read relationships. We need to read 
interactions. We need to read political developments, etc. right? And we need to read these things in the scriptures as well as read these things in our day-to-day -day experiences. Now, as far as the scriptural component is concerned, to the extent to which we have to read to better understand historical and cultural context, this would be part of the exegesis, a cultural exegesis of sorts, if that makes sense. Um, and I want to be clear here, like, I don't think um, David was the first person to invent this idea or pioneer this idea. I think good exegesis includes a cultural element anyway. I just think far too frequently that's something that we can overlook um, or maybe something we just don't really value. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why that's a little bit of an issue later in this uh, post. But I love this argument and I, and I wholeheartedly agree with it. It made me wonder about churches today. In our ironic um, emphasis on exegesis, which is about reading, are we culturally literate? That is, are we able and willing to read culture? The answer is complicated. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. Um, and I landed on sometimes yes and sometimes no. <laughs> Very classic. Um, but let's start with sometimes yes, right? And we can kind of kick off our conversation. It's true. There are moments in time when the church demonstrates its cultural literacy. That is a fact. We'll mention in our commentary of the gospel all the interaction Jesus had with women in his ministry, even women of ill repute. Right. You can see that in Luke chapter seven. You can see that in John chapter eight. And I think that's important. Right. You can't read a text like the Bible uh, and make a connection between a male teacher interacting with women, maybe <laughs> women that are uh, weren't particularly well regarded without uh, demonstrating some level of cultural literacy. Right. We'll talk about how Jesus spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. You can think about uh, Matthew chapter 8 as a reference. You can also see Mark chapter 2 um, as well. Again, that's cultural literacy, not just for the religious reasons, but also for the social reasons too, right? Because those are people that are stigmatized in society at large. Uh, we might even go as far as to say that the 12 disciples that Jesus called, for the most part, were poor, uneducated dudes, they were super basic, right? So that's kind of a class uh, component to reading the scripture and reading the gospel. Hey, that's cultural literacy. These are all important reading insights, right? But sometimes the answer is no. That is sometimes, maybe a lot of times, the church is not culturally, culturally literate. And I think this manifests in one of three ways. Um, and I'll very briefly touch on each in no particular order. Now, the first way or the first example in which we can fail to be culturally literate is in reading the Bible, we can somehow miss ethnic, racial, and cultural tension during the period. You know, I'm reading through Joshua now, and it's a book I go to when I need to be inspired because Joshua is all about Conquest, literally. 
Joshua replaces Moses and he leads the Israelite people into the promised land. But to do so, he ends up going city to city and basically killing all of the other ethnic groups in the region. Today, we would call this ethnic cleansing. As a person who's spent all of my life in church, it's so easy to gloss over that, right? But if I was reading in a news article today that country X was going to war with country Y because country X believed as a result of their religious tradition, the land belongs to them, I would be extremely concerned. But when I read about it in the Bible, I don't even think twice about it. I have to remind myself that ethnic cleansing is very much a part of cultural tension, both past and present. I tell uh, people that throughout human existence, groups go to war for lots of reasons, but I think three major reasons that groups go to war is respect, resources, and or religion. If you can't tell, (laughs) I really like alliteration, right? Respect, resources, religion. It's a very easy and kind of intuitive framework for thinking about, you know, group conflict. And we can uh, see lots of ethno-religious conflict in the Bible when we choose to be culturally literate. I mean, it's not unlike some of our modern tension between different ethnic and religious groups in the U.S. or otherwise. I think that leads to kind of the second insight here, right? So the second kind of example for which we can kind of choose to be culturally literate or fail to be, excuse me, the second example that illustrates how we can fail to be culturally literate is in reading the Bible, we see and recognize the ethnic, racial, and cultural tension during that period, but we fail to see how it connects to ministry today. To be fair, part of this is very much an artifact of living in America. Now, this is beyond the scope of this post, um, but let me see if I can do this and do this well. Um, There is a body of work in psychology investigating something more or less known as the mythology of progress. Importantly, this body of work does not say that America hasn't made progress. Quite the contrary. America has made tremendous progress. The mythology of progress as a body of research or a field of research is about the peculiar tendency among Americans to overestimate America's progress in addressing inequality. I'll say that again. This is a body of work investigating the peculiar tendency among Americans to overestimate our progress in addressing inequality. And that could be racism, it could be sexism, classism, whatever you want. In the same way people seem to show a general tendency to have an overly positive view of themselves, it would seem one of the consequences of living in one of the wealthiest and most highly esteemed and respected countries on the face of the planet is to assume we've been more effective in our pursuit of progress 
than we actually have been objectively. Imagine a graph, and hopefully this doesn't get too complicated, but imagine a graph with time on the x-axis, right? So the x-axis is the one that extends horizontally. So you have time on the x-axis, that's the independent variable, and progress in addressing inequality on the y-axis. That's the vertical axis, that's your dependent variable. Now, on the y-axis, that measure of inequality could be any measure that you'd like. It could be educational attainment or educational achievement or graduation rates or health or income or poverty rates or wealth inequality or home ownership rates, whatever you want. For all the different groups that live in America, gay people, straight people, black people, white people, you map it out literally for every group over time. Um, and we can then ask people their estimates of inequality. And by inequality, I mean you can compare uh, the groups with all the resources and power to the groups that are discriminated against and oppressed and marginalized. And the difference between those, that could be like a measure of inequality, right? And so you can then ask people today, what do you think the level of inequality was in the 1920s? And then I'll ask those same people, what do you think the measure of inequality was in the 1930s? What do you think inequality looked like in the 1940s? How much inequality did you think there was in the 1950s? What about the 1960s, the 1970s? And we do that all the way up to the present. And at every point, we compare people's estimates of what they think inequality was to what inequality actually was based on objective data for each point in time, right? Now, research shows most Americans are under the impression that America's pursuit of progress in, in addressing inequality is mostly linear and positive, right? So mathematically, line linearity means a constant rate of change, and then a positive rate of change means the line is going up. So they think it's mostly linear and it's mostly positive since the women's suffrage movement and since the civil rights movement. In other words, since providing women and black people rights in America, things have only gotten better. They can't stay the same and they can't get worse. This is America, so things only get better. Everybody has their rights now, so it's only up from here. Here's the kicker though. In America, not only are there a number of measures of progression towards inequality that have been a flat line over the last 70 years. For your reference, a flat line basically means mathematically it's not changing. It's zero. There is no progress. It's a flat horizontal line. So not only are there measures of progression towards equality that have been flat over the last 70 years, there are some measures of equality that have gotten worse over time. In other words, there are some measures where we were doing better in the 1920s or the 1930s or the 1940s. There are some aspects of equality that have actually gotten worse. I say that to say, I think it's easy for Christians in America to read about oppression or suffering in the scriptures and to feel like, one, oppression and suffering is a thing foreign to America. That means it happens 
elsewhere in other countries, but not here in America because suffering is very un-American. Or two, oppression and suffering is a thing of America's past, but we don't have to worry about it as much in the present or in America's future. Now, aside from both of those ideas just being categorically false, and again, data supports that, this train of thinking is harmful. And again, data supports that too, especially for Christians, because it doesn't motivate in us or create a desire um, to... Uh, champion or, or, or advocate for groups that are oppressed or marginalized because we think that America only gets better over time. So our need to do that and the importance of doing that is going to decrease. And again, that's just not true. Now, the third kind of example that illustrates how we can fail to be culturally illiterate is in reading the scriptures, we can romanticize ministry that we read about in the Bible as if they didn't deal with ethnic, racial, and cultural tension like we do today. And that's not true either. There was tension between Jews and Gentiles. We see that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. There was tension between Jews and Samaritans. We see that in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. There was even tension among just Jews based on things like exposure to Greek culture. You can see Acts chapter 7 as the reference for that. There was tension between uh, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. There was uh, beef about things like diet, no pun intended. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16 kind of speaks about that. Mark 7 Verses 14 through 19 speaks to that as well. There was uh, tension about things like circumcision. Galatians chapter 2 speaks to that that idea. Uh, The racial and ethnic and cultural tension isn't specific to the present era of history. That's not true. Christians back then wrestled through the same things. And trying to figure out how to grapple with these topics didn't mean they loved God any less. I think it's important to remember that one of the most defining elements of the ministry of Christ was that he was countercultural, right? This is almost the epitome of cultural exegesis. By countercultural, I don't simply mean going against the culture, because that going against culture doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything beneficial. It just means you're going against culture. By countercultural specifically, I mean resisting the urge to conform to culture in ways that don't promote biblical values. Now, to that end, we need to understand that part of being like Jesus is being countercultural. I mean, you can't be countercultural if you can't read culture. You can't be countercultural if you insist on being blind to race and ethnicity and culture. You can't be countercultural if you don't understand what culture might expect you to do in a given situation. Now Jesus calls you to a different standard. You can't be countercultural if you can't recognize how culture may affect your own ministry and the ministry of other Christians today as well. Guys, we need to be able to read 
culture. Now, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of churches today aren't really excelling in this area. Now, with this in mind, this three-part series is on cultural liter uh, literacy, cultural exegesis, if you will. It's a cultural examination of three texts in the Bible, um, and I'll make it an emphasis to try and circle back with applications today. <laughs> now, all of that is just the introduction to the series. Um, so obviously, this is going to be a longer post. Now, let's jump in with our first text. And our first text is on the Samaritan woman, uh, and that's in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, before digging into John 4, uh, perhaps some history on the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, because that's really important to the scripture. Now, you can read about Israel's history throughout the Old Testament, right? Although Israel was at one point a unified nation, later in its history, it split into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, consisting of uh, 10 of the 12 Jewish tribes, was called Israel, and the capital was Samaria. The southern kingdom, consisting of the remaining two Jewish tribes, was called Judah, and the capital was Jerusalem. Divided, Israel did not stand a chance. Both of these kingdoms were attacked. Both of these kingdoms were defeated. Both kingdoms experienced captivity in the nation of the country that defeated them. But the outcome for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom is markedly different. The southern kingdom was defeated by the Babylonians. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the king actually gave them permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city that the Babylonians laid waste to. Look at God. This captivity is where we get a number of Old Testament texts. I'll give you some examples. Uh, in Jeremiah, for instance, uh, this is an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And he was sad because God told him Judah was about to be attacked by Babylon. He tried to warn the Jewish people uh, but they refused to repent and turn to God. Now, that notion is kind of a theme in the Old Testament, although that's not unlike my relationship with God and certainly yours too. So again, we, we kind of hear about this captivity a little bit in Jeremiah. In Daniel, three promising Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are brought before the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who expects them to fall on their knees and worship him. And they insist on worshiping their own God, Yahweh. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the furnace. So we see a little bit more about the captivity in a text like Daniel. In Nehemiah and Ezra, um, again, more Old Testament text, after the Babylonian king gives the Jews from Jerusalem permission to go back to their city, they go back to rebuild the temple so they can worship God. All things considered, God was very gracious to the Jews from Judah as their captivity only lasted 70 years, which I, I mean, I guess that's kind of a lifetime. But <laughs> by comparison, the northern kingdom, on the other hand, was defeated by the Assyrians. Here, the story differs in that the Assyrians never gave these Jews permission to go back to Samaria and rebuild their city. The story ends with them being taken into Assyria, and they never come back out. That's crazy. So for all intents and purposes, like it's like a cliffhanger. They go into Assyria, and we don't really know what happens to them after that. 
And I mean, obviously other historical accounts kind of give us more context and stuff like that. But anyway, since Assyria defeated the Northern Kingdom, Israel, its capital Samaria is now part of the Assyrian Empire. As is common practice in colonization, the Assyrian king sent Assyrians to occupy Samaria. The, terri the territory belongs to them after all, right? So they send people from Assyria to occupy this land that belongs to them. Now, they become friendly and they start to, excuse me. Now, when the Assyrians get to Samaria, they're greeted by a small remnant of Jews and presumably maybe some other Gentiles that live in that area as well. Um, but they're, they're greeted by a remnant of Jews that were not taken into Assyrian captivity. And they become friendly and they start to intermarry with each other. Um, and the result, right, is a new ethno-religious group of people who are part Jewish and part Assyrian. Now, ain't that something? This group of people is called the Samaritans because, of course, all of this happened in Samaria. There's a reason why God said Israel should not intermarry with foreigners. And obviously foreigners kind of, excuse me, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, uh, Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 14, and other portions of scripture that kind of allude to uh, this idea of what it means to be a foreigner or alien to God and things of that sort. Uh, God didn't want Israel to intermarry with foreigners. Exactly what God said would happen did happen. Although the Samaritans were half Jewish, the Assyrian cultural influence led them astray. Particularly, the Samaritans used a different version of the Torah. So in essence, they had a separate religious text than the Jews. The Samaritans had a different place of worship than the Jews. So naturally, this led to religious dispute. The Samaritans were polytheistic. They did worship Yahweh, but they worshiped lots of other Assyrian gods too. While, again, the Jews were monotheistic. As you would imagine, a lot of these religious and cultural differences created tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And I'll illustrate with an example. Ezra chapter 4 perfectly captures this idea. The Jews from the southern kingdom are returning to Babylon, and although Jerusalem was initially destroyed by the Babylonians, they're intent on rebuilding their city and having a fresh start. When these Jews are rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, the Bible says the Samaritans weren't particularly enthused about it. The Samaritans offer their help, and Zerubbabel, one of the leaders in the effort to rebuild the temple, responds as follows. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. Talk about throwing shade. Man, things sound tense. Keep in mind, this is about 550 BC. That means this tension, this shade, this, uh, 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 this, this bumping of heads, it's going to continue to strain uh, and the relationship is going to continue to sour for another 500 years of history. 
And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 4. Now, can you imagine trying to read a scripture like John 4, an interaction between a Jewish religious teacher and a Samaritan woman without understanding this cultural landscape? I mean, a cultural exegesis of sorts to, to, I guess, to stay true to the title of the series. Cultural literacy. I think if you read John 4 without seeing the ethnic, cultural, and racial tension, you probably miss the most important thing. Again, that's just my opinion. Even the woman notes how strange their interaction is in, uh, in verse 9. Because Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus wasn't supposed to be in Samaria. I mean, he could have taken a longer route to avoid passing through there. Jesus wasn't supposed to be talking to Samaritans. He could have avoided interacting with anyone while he was in the town, right? Jesus wasn't supposed to be drinking this lady's water because Jews thought Samaritans were unclean, so drinking her water would make Jesus unclean too. Jesus certainly wasn't supposed to be offering this woman uh, the gift of salvation because 500 years of history says the Samaritans were perhaps the greatest enemy of the Jewish people. But remember what we said. Jesus defines his ministry on being counter-cultural. This doesn't just manifest on race and ethnic lines. We also need to understand the culture of a male-dominated society like the one we have in this text. I mean, honestly, that's even true today, but that's a different conversation. Uh, this is a very conservative culture. And here we have a man interacting with a woman who he knows is promiscuous, in some sense of the word. Jesus could have said, give me your water. Jesus could have said, excuse my language, give me your water, you disgusting whore. I mean, Jesus could have said, give me your water. Oh, by the way, I heard you're down for a good time. So what's up with me and you? Not only is there racial and, and, and cultural tension, even like culture in the sense of identity categories and things of that sort, uh, but there's uh, important religious distinctions as well. If you look at verse 12, this woman calls Jacob her father. Well, what's important about that? Well, Jacob is the father of Israel. In fact, in Genesis 32, we see a passage where Jacob, uh, Jacob's name actually becomes Israel. He is literally the forefather of Israel as a nation. And this woman, who's only part Jewish, is claiming, that's my daddy too. Honestly, I think that's a stretch. And again, I'm just thinking about context in the Bible, right? Now, if Jacob were around during this time period when they were interacting, I imagine he would probably have some choice words for the, Samaritan, for the Samaritans about their idolatry. So... It's probably a little bit of a stretch to call Jacob your forefather or call Jacob the forefather of the Samaritan people. I'm not saying uh, Jacob would have had a prejudice or ill will or, or spite in his heart, 
But I don't think Jacob would have claimed the Samaritans as his descendants because they differed so much from the Jewish culture that Jacob embodied. In many ways, Samaritans were the embarrassment of the Jewish people, the result of a mistake with several generations of consequences to prove it. Somehow, I'm not sure if Jacob would have claimed this group of idolatrous half-Gentile people. I'm convinced that any other Jewish man or woman would have found this woman claiming to be a descendant of Jacob extremely insulting. Remember, the Samaritans are probably regarded as an embarrassment. In many ways, they represented the greatest embarrassment of the Jewish people. The Samaritans represented what happens when the Jews are in obedience to God. The Samaritans represented what happens when the Jews aren't holy and are led astray by foreign traditions. The Samaritans represented what happens when the people of God compromise and become just like everyone else. And here was this woman claiming that her and Jesus both have the same father, Jacob. But Jesus doesn't flip. He totally keeps his cool. He converses with her for some time and uh, concludes the interaction by telling her that he is indeed the son of God. Jesus was absolutely 100% culturally literate. I think that's one of the reasons why we see so many cases where Jews, um, we see so many cases between Jews and Samaritans in the gospel. We see that in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is turned away at Samaria. We see it in Luke chapter 10, the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see it in Luke 17, uh, where Jesus heals 10, um, but only one, a Samaritan, uh, comes back to say thank you. Jesus knew exactly what it would mean for him to have so many interactions with the Samaritans in spite of 500 plus years of sour history. Now, this is just my opinion. But I personally think Jesus was more interested in talking to this woman, perhaps for that very reason. I think Jesus wanted to build bridges between groups that weren't supposed to be interacting, right? Jesus is described as a man who fellowshiped with sinners and tax collectors. Those aren't the kind of people you would expect the religious folk to be hanging out with. Now, similarly, Samaritans aren't the kind of people you would expect the king of the Jews to be hanging out with either. And certainly not a woman. I mean, if you're going to hang out with Samaritans, at least interact with someone of higher standing, I imagine is what Jews would be saying. Yet and still, we see Jesus here with this woman. I want to return to my earlier point. If we're not culturally literate, we miss all of this. But here's the kicker. This isn't just an archaic rivalry between two groups of people in the Bible. You guys already know about racial tension today. You guys already know about ethnic and cultural tension today. I don't want to talk to people like you. You're gentrifying my community. I don't want to talk to people like you. You don't want to stand up for the pledge. I don't want to talk to people like you. You're probably in this country illegally. I don't want to talk to people like you. You're wearing a MAGA hat. 
I don't want to talk to people like you. Your reliance on government assistance puts a huge drain on the economy. I don't want to talk to people like you. You love black culture more than you love black people. I don't want to talk to people like you. You don't support our police. I don't want to talk to people like you. You were only admitted to my school because of affirmative action. I don't want to talk to people like you. You're probably looking for any opportunity to call the police on me. I don't want to talk to people like you. You make black people like me look bad. I don't want to talk to people like you. You're a white supremacist masquerading as a, as a patriot or a Christian or whatever you want to call it. Whatever. I won't spell things out. But here's what I'll say instead. I think in looking at a text like John chapter 4, we see a great lesson in intentionality. Jesus isn't blind to the realities of the situation. He doesn't use rhetoric like, I don't see your race, or I don't think of you as a Samaritan, or uh, when I look at you, I just see a person. I don't think about the, the country or the nation or the ethnic group that you belong to. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He doesn't use any of that kind of rhetoric. Jesus recognizes that he is Jewish and she is Samaritan. But he also reads the culture. In this moment, I think of Jesus taking 30 seconds to do a cultural exegesis of sorts, right? Showing his cultural literacy. It may be something like this. Year, approximately 27 AD. Time, the sixth hour. City, Samaria. Me, single Jewish man. Her, single Samaritan woman. My religion monotheistic, Yahweh, her religion, polytheistic, Yahweh plus others. Conclusion, this is a great opportunity to do something that is very unorthodox based on the cultural climate. This interaction is going to be historic because of all of these considerations and many more. And then he went for it, right? And now we have this text in the Bible as a result. Maybe we'll park here to end part one. Part two, we'll perform a similar exercise with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. Uh, feedback, welcome. Just some random thoughts.